You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That was good. That was good. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you're with us today. Today's a special day. It's a little different than usual. Doing one song announcements and jumping right into it because at the end of today, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to, either at home online or here today, to receive Jesus Christ and perhaps even be baptized today. So just put a little thought in your head as you're thinking about it. We had two baptisms last service, so come on now. You got to step up so we can at least have something. I'm just kidding. Don't get baptized just to balance the services. All right. We are going through the book of Genesis, and we're using the outline of another book, completely different book of the Bible called Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 introduces us to today's character. Here it is. Verse 7 it says this. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, many of you have heard of Noah. Some of you saw a terrible movie, kind of roughly generically, about this character. We'll get to that in a minute. But most of us, when we think of Noah, we think of something a little bit like this. Is that about how you think of Noah when we talk about Noah? I, how many of you, come on now, let's be honest, because I'm guilty. How many of you had something like this in your child's room when you had like a nursery built for them? Yes, something? You, we, we had this all over in a room. In fact, um, when, before we left Colorado, there was a Hallmark store that went out of business and uh, they had put up for sale, they had this cool like Noah's Ark. It's very graphic and detailed. It's got like an open door and it's, it's about like this big. I almost, I almost like took a picture of it. I thought, eh. And uh, you could buy all these like little animals and pair them up. You like two zebras and two, two you know, lions and two elephants. And, and because the Hallmark store was going out of business, they didn't have two of everything. So because my wife loves Noah's Ark, I bought whatever they had. So uh, unfortunately in our version of Noah's Ark, there isn't a, a recreation of all the animal sets. Some of them aren't gonna be here anymore, but... This is what we tend to think of when we think of Noah. These smiling faces, the animals are on some kind of joy cruise, right? This is probably more what it looked like. Well, that's not nearly as fun, is it? You've got this big boat. Everything is covered in water to the highest mountain. You've got lightning and rain for days on end. It's like living in Indiana. And um, I'm just kidding. Nobody, come on. Anyway. It is a bad, bad day. It's a bad series of days. It's a bad year. And that's the story we're jumping into today. And so what I did is I went around to some different staff and some other people. I said, all right, there's some different angles we can take on this story. We, we could take the scientific angle, what's happening scientifically in the world. We could, we could take the spiritual angle, what's happening here as a result of sin and maybe in the spiritual world. We could take the philosophical approach, like what is going on that God would do this? And basically what I found is, depending on who I talked to, depending on which one they thought was the most important. So what I'm going to do is do them all. I talk really fast. Today I'm going to talk faster. So here are the four things we're going to cover very quickly, very briefly, hopefully just enough to whet your appetite, answer questions you may have, and we're going to have to move on. Here they are. Number one, why did the flood come? Number two, what changed as a result of the flood? Number three, what do I make, how do I make sense of God in moments like this? And number four, what does all of this mean for me? All right, number one, we gotta go fast. This is the one we're gonna have to spend a lot of time on. And this is the one, it's gonna be like 
opening a can of worms that I don't have time. I don't even know what that's an analogy to. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. But I do know when I took my boys fishing and we opened up a little thing of worms from Walmart, like the worms are trying to climb out everywhere. And I think that's what the analogy means. That's what's gonna happen today. And we're gonna take the worms and throw them into the water and let the fish eat them. Where is this going? I have no idea. There's a flood and water and worms. Genesis chapter six says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Hang on to that. I'll try to make some sense of it. Jump down to verse five. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. What is happening? Well, we're gonna unpack a lot of this, but basically there are three main understandings of what's happening in these last four verses that I've read for you. The first one is what we call the Sethite view. And I don't have time to go into this, I did a podcast with Andy that will release this week that just went about 20 minutes on what I'm about to summarize for all of you. So it's not way deeper, but it's a little deeper. The Seth I view says this. As we talked last week, Genesis 5 tells us about Cain's family line and begins by telling us about that there was Seth. He's kind of the beginning of this new line. And Seth, who eventually leads to Jesus Christ. So what happens is you have the Seth I they are the sons of God, and they marry the Canaanites, and they are the daughters of men. And the Sethites are the godly line, and they should have followed after God, sought after God, but instead, they started marrying these other women who did not follow after God, did not love God, and it ended up ruining the whole thing. Everybody became corrupt, and all of a sudden, you don't see a line that loves God and a line that loves or doesn't love God. That's the Sethite view. I don't buy into that view. The other two most popular views, uh, either one is acceptable. It doesn't matter if you agree with me or not. I'll tell you, mine is the third one. We'll get there in a second. The second view is the one that my Old Testament professor bought into. And that is this. The sons of God refers to the kings of the earth. They're the sons of God. They're the people with power, powerful governors and rulers, except they abuse the power that God gave them on his earth. And they take advantage of, they rape and pillage these women, these daughters of men, the commoners, and thereby corrupting everything. And everything was just broken because you've got these people with all the power and the resources, and they're taking advantage of everybody else who doesn't have power and resources. That is a viable view. Many godly men and women buy that. But then there's the third option, and this is the one where I buy into, and I'll show you why. And this is the can of worms. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine. It's not a big deal, okay? The third view is this. The sons of God, referred to in the last passage, refers to angelic beings. And all of you just went, huh? You ever see the movie? Came out in like 1998. Some of you weren't even born yet. I get it. But in 1998, I think it was, there was a movie came out called City of Angels. It starred Nicolas Cage. Then again, everything stars Nicolas Cage. And Nicolas Cage is an angelic being who walks around the city of Los Angeles and his job is kind of meet people in their time of, I think it was death and like comfort, comfort them and walk with them until that moment comes. But he falls in love with Meg Ryan and he ends up leaving his abode of heaven and he has a relationship with her and he's cast out of heaven as a result of it. And there's some of that that's going on in Genesis chapter six. Take a look at verse four. So I skipped. I went one, two, five, six. Let's take a look at the verse in the middle, verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. 
when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, people have been wrestling with this, not for decades, not for hundreds of years, for thousands and thousands of years. Rabbis, way back before Jesus had popped up on the scene, were talking about this and wrestling with this and trying to figure it out. There are entire books that are not in the Bible. The Bible is 66 books if you're a Christian. There's 29 books if you aren't a Christian, if you're a Jewish person. And people wrote these extra books, books like 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Enoch, book like Jubilees or the book of Giants. They are not biblical books. The Jewish and the Christian scholars do not believe God has given these, these books, but they go back to the story and they try to fill in the gaps. What is happening here? Who are the Nephilim? Why are they giants? Giants, if you don't notice this, appear in other parts of the Bible, like when David fights a guy named Goliath. Or you may notice when Joshua goes into the promised land and the people are originally, the spies are originally afraid because there's giants in the land. And it at least answers the question, where did these giants come from? This phrase, sons of God, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it says it's something like bena Elohim. And throughout the Old Testament, it is used to refer to angelic beings. So the question comes, is this the one text that is the exception to the rule, or is this text also referring to angelic beings? And you may be asking yourself, why is that even relevant? How did we end up here? I came to Kingsway to learn about Noah today. Well, let's talk about Noah for a second. Did anybody here see the movie that came out in 2014? Anybody? Yes. If this is your only understanding of the story of Noah, I want you to ditch everything you heard and go read Genesis chapter six through nine. We don't have time to cover it all today, but we do need to cover some important pieces. So this book was written and directed and produced by Darren Aronofsky, which I know you can't read that little tiny font up there. And Darren Aronofsky created these characters called the Watchers. And this is what the Watchers look like. In his version of Noah, the Watchers is playing on some of those books I referenced, first, second, and third Enoch, and Jubilees, and the Book of Giants. And it's playing off these non-biblical book stories that are written. And what happened, if you remember the movie, if you didn't see it, do not waste your time and money. I did and prep for the sermon. Trust me, it's not worth it. Anyway, what they did is envision these like alien creatures that are made of light, which would fit the biblical description of many kinds of angels, angels of light. And they come to earth and they disobey the creator. And so therefore the creator turns them into these rock creatures and they're bound to earth. And in Arnofsky's version of the story, they're heroes in the story. Now, the Watcher's concept is not a new concept. We see this in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he's told about these Watchers. And there's a couple other passages where they appear in the Old Testament. Arnofsky, with his imagination and some extra biblical books, wrote this movie that has nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. And he's kind of combined Watchers and Nephilim and all these weird things and concepts to put them together. But Arnofsky literally is quoted as saying, Noah, the movie he made, is the least biblical film ever made. It's the least biblical, biblical film ever made, actually, he says. And he goes on and he says, it's a huge environmental statement in the film about the coming flood from global warming. The whole reason Arnofsky made this film is because he wanted to take the biblical story and make it about the worldwide flood. He had an agenda talking about climate change today. That's it. End of his idea and where he got it right. There's so many wrong things in his story. So if that's your idea of Noah, toss it out. But let's come back to this for a minute. What is happening? 
Why did the flood occur? And there's two things we know with certainty, regardless of how they played out. Number one, we know that sin has grown on the earth to the point where God grieves that he ever even made humans. And what the flood shows us is that God is just and he will hold all of us accountable for sin. And if God pronounces a judgment through the flood, he has the right to do so. It brings up a great question, though, like, how evil could things have gotten that he would do that? You ever go back and look at what Hitler did to the Jews? I mean, it was terrible, but God didn't flood the earth. Do you ever look at, like, ancient Rome? Ancient Rome, like, man, they, they literally could divorce for any reason at any time. It was common for early first century Roman men to, to take little boys and bring them into their family as, like, their toys on the side, in addition to their spouses, I'm just going to leave it there. You can read about all this stuff if you really want to. I don't know why. It was commonplace in that day. And God condemns all of those things, and yet he doesn't do anything about it. The Romans would often uh, practice something called infanticide, where after a baby was born, if they decided they didn't want the baby, they would just go leave it outside to the fates. They could not like the color of the hair or the way it looked, or, or it was a boy instead of a girl, or a girl instead of a boy, or whatever it might be. And they would just abandon it outside and then leave it up to the, well, it's up to the gods and fate to take care of it. The early Christians knew this, and they would go around and gather up these babies and bring them in and take care of them, and said, no, we believe all human life has value. So part of what we know is happening is things had to get so evil that they had to get worse than Hitler. They had to get worse than Rome. Whatever is going on, it has become completely evil and vile and corrupt. But the other thing that's going on is there's a spiritual battle. And the spiritual battle is raging. I land in the camp and I'm willing to be wrong and it's not something we need to divide over. But I land in the camp that says there are some angelic hosts who left the thing that God gave them, the spirit world, and somehow became married to or took for themselves wives of human beings, and out of that, these Nephilim are produced. And I know that may sound weird to you, but it's actually not that weird. Scholars have been talking about this for a very long time, just nobody ever told you about it. Take a look at Jude chapter one. Well, there is no chapter one, it's just Jude. Jude one, though. Look at this for a moment. It says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Now, before we go to the next part, I want to make clear. Jude is one chapter, one chapter. That's it. It's one page. You could read it in 10 minutes later today. And Jude is dealing with a corruption that is happening in the early church. The early church has people slipping in among them and basically giving a license to sin. They're saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you do or how you do it. And this is part of the problem. We know part of the sin of Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six, I said that right? We know that part of their sin is sexual corruption. If you fast forward in the Bible just a little bit to Leviticus chapter 18, God spells out in graphic detail his view of the sexual ethic. A man is to have one wife. A man is to have nothing to do with his father's wife, whether it's his biological mother or his stepmother. He's to have nothing to do with his father's daughter, whether it's his literal sister or a stepsister. And some of you may be thinking, why does he need to spell this out? But I'm telling you, as a pastor, I get these questions. Today, I get these questions from people going, well, my dad remarried. I'm not really related to her. 
And Leviticus 18 spells it all out. And the point of doing that is God wants everybody to know there is a healthy boundary that he, as the creator, has set in place for what is right and what is wrong. And anything outside of that boundary is not accepted. And Genesis chapter six is laying out that there are these angelic hosts, these angelic beings, they left the boundary that God placed on them and they started to have relationships with humans. Now look at the next verse. These people who are coming into the church and corrupting people, it says they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So we should always be careful of somebody who comes in among us and says, it doesn't matter what you do because of grace. Because Judah's going, that is a perversion of the truth. But then notice what he says in verse six. What he does next, I'll set this up before we read it, is he gives like three examples of like, it's like this and it's like this and it's like this. And one of those examples is this one. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And if you were to read that and have no context for Genesis chapter 6, you'd be like, huh, that's weird. Let's keep moving. But Jude is directly drawing on some of those other books that were written. He is directly drawing on Genesis chapter 6. And he's saying, God, after these angelic hosts left their place... He bound them in chains, and he said, one day I'm going to deal with you, but not yet. So whatever exactly is going on in the text, we know that there is a spiritual battle happening on earth, and we know there is a sin battle happening on earth, and both are happening simultaneously, and that's the reason for the flood. So let's get to the next question, and we can't spend this much time on all of them, right? But what changed as a result of sin and the flood? What changed? And the very quick answer is everything. How'd you like that? Welcome to Kingsway. The answer is everything. Okay. But think about this. The entire way the world looks, the entire way the world feels, the entire way the world responds to our needs has radically changed. Literally everything has changed. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says that in that time, God watered everything by water coming up from the ground. I want you to think about it for a minute. When you're finding roots coming up to the top of the ground, why are they coming to the top of the ground? Well, besides the fact that we've stripped off the top layer of really rich, nutrient-rich soil that your, your trees and plants need, also they're looking for water. And so your roots are coming up to the ground. But imagine God waters everything from the ground. The roots are gonna go down deep into that water. And what happens is this was a game changer. When the flood came, everybody's mocking Noah. No, what are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? Building a massive boat. Why are you doing that? And then it started raining and people went, well, that's new. And then it kept raining and it kept raining and it kept raining. And by the way, it says God shut the door on the ark. God shut it. Now, for those years that Noah was building the boat, everybody could have got on. Anybody could have responded, but they didn't. They mocked and they didn't believe. But now, think about it. Why is the rainbow such a powerful statement after the flood? It's because rain has come. Rain had never fallen before the flood. You're like, oh, that makes sense. I can't explain it all to you. 
But that's not the only thing that changed. Something changed in the human-animal interaction. Take a look at Genesis chapter nine. You can read all this on your own later. It's fascinating stuff, but here's part of it. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. And all God's people said, amen. No, come on, I'll explain it in a minute, all right. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Prior to this, I'm not saying no one ate animals because we don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. But prior to this, the only food that was given to people to eat were plants. If you go back and look at Genesis chapters one and two, we're described that God says, I gave you all of these trees and all of the, I gave you all of these things for you to eat. But then in Genesis 9, something has changed in the relationship between human and animals. Now, animals are afraid of us. You'll notice that. I love this little like, website called The Dodo. Have you guys ever watched that? And it's like little videos of like animals and like somehow there's like this partnership. I remember reading this story about this guy's walking along and they're like, this squirrel comes out and it's just freaking out. And they're like trying to figure out what's happening. The squirrel's afraid. This cat's trying to kill it. He takes the squirrel home and he cares for it and whatever and like transitions it back into the woods. I'm like, oh, I love this stuff. I love it. There's like this relationship between man and animals. It's broken today. It's not the way it was intended to be, but it is the way it is post-flood. If you were to read all of this passage, I think there's like nine verses here that kind of describes it. God lays out an ethic that's super important. Humans are made in the image of God. Therefore, anybody who kills a human will be held accountable. You think about that for a minute. He said, if another human kills another human, I will hold that human accountable. And if another animal kills another human, I will hold that animal accountable and you're to kill that animal. And the reason is, we rule over the animals. We should never accept an ethic that says animals are just as important as humans, period. They are not our ancestors. But in addition to that, we should never accept a biblical ethic or system that demotes animals that says they aren't important. They are part of God's creation that he has given us care over, to watch over, and to love. But something changed when the flood came so that the only animal relationship we've ever known is a post-flood one that isn't the way it was meant to be. I didn't say this last service, but think about it. When Isaiah talks about the new kingdom and heaven comes, and it says the lion will lay down with the lamb. It's supposed to describe peace, but what if it's also literal? and there's a literal lion and a literal lamb laying side by side in heaven because neither one's thinking about eating the other one. And the human will stick his hand into a pit, a child, and he won't worry about getting bit by an Adler. Why? A snake. Why? Because there's nothing there to hurt him. It's been completely removed. Whatever existed in the garden has been restored. Now, this is what Paul's trying to get to in Romans chapter 8. When he says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. There's a lot here. I don't have time to unpack all of this. But what I want you to get from this is Paul in Romans chapter 8 is trying to deal with why is there chaos, <coughs> excuse me, on God's earth? Why is there sickness and disease and earthquakes and, and hurricanes and famine? I just read yesterday in an article that because of a massive worldwide food shortage, there are gonna be roughly 50 million people in the world dealing with famine. That is not a small issue. Christians shouldn't look at that and say, whoo, I'm glad I made it out. 
It should break our hearts. In fact, India is a nation. If you don't know anything about India, we have missionaries there. It's a very, very poor nation. It's, its systems are all messed up. You've got just people trying to make it and no access to resources. And it said India as a nation is having to hold its food back because there isn't enough food to go around. The problem with that is their entire financial system is built on that food going out so dollars can come back in. And it's the brokenness of the world that we live in. And creation is longing not to be held back anymore. But somehow when we sinned and the flood came, it changed the entire story so that now what we see is disease and famine and earthquake and hurricane and mosquitoes. You ever think about that for a minute? Like, ah, how could that have been a God's good plan? I don't think it was. Anyway, it's because sin has subjected creation. Creation doesn't want to be this way. Creation was created to meet our needs, and it longs to do that. But Romans 8, if you read it, it says even creation is groaning. Like, ah, when is Jesus going to come back so we can finally be set free? Which leads to the next thing. After the flood, there's this impact of death, and it became greater. And we're told since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that now you will surely die, but people start living 300, 500, 700, 800 years but Genesis 6.3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. There is debate whether this 120 years began the countdown from God saying this to the building of the boat and the flood coming, or whether this 120 years was supposed to be like humans aren't going to live past 120 years. I land in that camp, but if I'm wrong, it doesn't really matter. What I do find fascinating is this word here for mortal is the word corrupt, literally the word corrupt. And if you know the passage, Paul, in talking about Jesus coming back and one day resurrecting us from the dead, and he says, one day the corrupt will be exchanged for the incorruptible. He picked that word on purpose. Did you know that? I always tell you the Bible never says anything on accident. Everything it says is on purpose. You just have to understand the connections between it. Paul is literally looking at this and he's saying, man, because we've been subjected to the curse of death, because of sin, this body is dying and decaying and it's wasting away. And I don't know if it's gonna be a heart attack or a stroke or a liver or a cancer or why it's gonna be for you, but you are going to die. And when you do die, God wants to make a great exchange with you. He wants to change the corruptible for the incorruptible so that you, through Jesus Christ, can have eternal life. Now, how do I make sense of God in moments like this? This deserves an hour, and I'm gonna give it three minutes. But I'm gonna try to make sense of it as best I can. Genesis 6, 7 says, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and they're creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. How can God have regret? We know from Peter, Peter says, before the foundations of the world were laid, Jesus Christ was crucified. So before anything in the universe was put in place, God already knew where the story had to go. So what that can't mean, because I know this is a question we ask is, well, it looks like God didn't know. That's not the implication here. The implication is God grieves just like us. God's heart aches just like us. God experiences that brokenness and longing for relationship just like us. 
This is exactly what Paul's trying to get to when he says to the believer, do not grieve the Holy Spirit when you sin. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin and to bring about righteousness. And when the Holy Spirit's doing that and you say, no, I will not repent, I will not change, I will not turn to you, it grieves the heart of God. Well, how can God grieve? Because he wants a relationship with you. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to redeem you. God could have wiped everything out and just said, forget it. I'm done with these people. But he didn't. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God found one man and his wife and his kids and their wife and said, I'm gonna start over. Yes, Maybe it'd be easier to just wipe it all out and start over, but who's to say the same thing wouldn't happen again? God always knew it was gonna lead to Jesus. God always knew it was gonna lead to a cross. God always knew it was gonna lead to suffering. So he took Noah and his family and said, let's start over. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, full of violence. It's hard for us to fully understand this. I've read some articles about things going on in Ukraine. And I won't repeat some of them because there may be children listening. It's bad. Imagine being completely powerless and evil abounds. And rape and pillage and murder and all of it. And because people are living three and 500 and 700 years, evil is increasing not getting less. In fact, it says, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Imagine you lived to say 400 years old and in year 100, instead of looking back over your 100 years and going, huh, there's probably a better way to do this. I should change. I should repent. You go, nah, I'm just gonna keep going. Those next few hundred years are only gonna get worse because you know this. Every time you go somewhere you're not supposed to go, do something you're not supposed to do, your brain becomes hardened to it. This is why at one point the New Testament says, be careful, be careful because if you keep sinning, you will actually sear your conscience as with a hot iron. Have you ever burned yourself before? Oh, it hurts at first. But then over time, that, that flesh hardens up and you lose sensation. You could touch it, you're like, well, I can't feel that anymore. That's what the Bible's warning is. What happens with sin is if something doesn't stop it and heal this pain that's a cause or has occurred, if it keeps going, you just lose all sensitivity to it whatsoever. And that's what's happening in Genesis chapter six. Everybody has lost all sensitivity to evil whatsoever. The compass is completely thrown out the window and people just keep going further and further and further from God. And God's heart is grieved and he's like, I can't just let this. A good God wouldn't let people keep doing these things to each other. See, we should not be shocked that God swept away the world's population with the flood. We should be shocked that he hasn't done similar to us. Paul says in Romans chapter three, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. It's easy to look at my neighbor or my sibling or my spouse or Hitler and think, well, I'm not as evil as them. I've never done those things. But Romans, Paul in Romans, he's saying, look, whatever you've done, you've transgressed the heart of a perfect God. 
so that every time you told that little lie or every time you cheated or stole, you broke his heart because you ruined something in his world. The world is now not fair and it's not safe and it's not honest. It's not the way he wanted it to be. And in Romans chapter six, Paul tells us the problem with that is the wages of sin is death. You know what wages are, right? You go to work, you work hard, you make money, you earn your money. It's what you get paid for your work. And Paul's saying, what we've earned for our sin is death. That's what we all deserve. It gets easy to put God on trial and go, how dare you do this? And God says, do you have any idea how gracious I am? I could have destroyed everybody, but instead I chose one family and said, I'm gonna be kind and merciful and reset the state. So what does all this mean for me? God is still being kind and merciful and resetting the stage today in my life and in your life. I was joking with some people after the service and one gentleman was saying, look, I just struggle because of my past. I've done a lot of things I'm not proud of. And the other person talking with us said, yeah, me too. And I said, I think some people think because I'm a pastor, I don't have a past. We've all got our thing, right? That part of our flesh that just keeps getting in the way, the thing we've done that we're deeply ashamed of, we wish would never happen. But the good news is, God hasn't left any of us there. Matthew Henry, a, a, a scholar who's long been dead, but has so many wise things to say, he says, none are punished by the justice of God, but only those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. And that's such a great quote. Because God's mercy, God's grace is available to anybody who wants to respond. That's the point of Jesus. In fact, 1 Peter 3 says it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Think about that. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. Then when he died on the cross, the Bible says he died in my place. He took my sins upon him. He never did anything wrong. He was the only one fully obedient. So when he died on the cross, he took my place. He suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. But why did he do it? To bring you to God. So that you didn't have to fall under God's judgment. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And some of you just went, oh, that's the thing we just talked about. Do you get why this is powerful? I don't understand everything happening in Genesis chapter six, but whatever Peter's talking about, he's saying when God pronounced judgment on them, Yes, humans were becoming corrupt, but our story has been influenced by a spiritual battle we can't see, but we feel every single day. Because our problem on this earth is three things, Satan, sin, and death. We're all gonna die, we've all sinned, and all of us have been led into sin by Satan. Now, we made the choice ourselves. Nobody could take that away from us, but he stands there tempting us and then accusing us over and over and over again. And I heard this analogy years ago. I've used it so many times. But imagine a door that's sitting there and it looks super appealing to you. 
And as you get closer to the door, you hear some gnarly noises coming outside and something inside you says, I should not open that door. But you go up to the door and you open it anyway. And a big, mean, drooling dog comes out and just starts attacking your leg. Now you've got a problem. You were led to open this door, but as soon as you did it, what we all do is we let our accuser, the enemy, who led us to the door, then tell us we're stupid. And instead of attacking the problem, sin, we start attacking ourselves. Go, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? I knew I should have opened the door. Kick the dog. <laughs> not literally. Do not go home. But your problem is Satan, who tempted you to open the door, sin, who attacked you when you opened it, and death, because that's ultimately where it's going to lead. And I get texts and emails and phone calls and messages from people all the time who say, but Matt, I've sinned after I found Jesus. Can God still love me? Peter goes on, he says, in it, the boat, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Whatever exactly happened in Genesis 6, Jesus, when he died, he went and proclaimed to them, you lose, I win. But then he stands with a door open to you, a door that is good for us, it says, and anybody who opens his door, I will eat with him. Think about this for a minute. In the flood, God wiped evil and sin off the face of the earth. What Peter is saying is there is a new flood. It's called baptism, except it's not removal of dirt from the body. It's not a bath. It doesn't physically make you clean. It's the pledge of a clean conscience before God. It's exactly what Martin Luther said when he was feeling tempted and he doesn't understand why his flesh is still tempting him after all these years. He would literally say out loud, but I am baptized. There was a moment in my life where I exchanged the corrupt for the incorruptible. And while it hasn't fully happened yet, I made a commitment to God. And in Jesus Christ, he has given me a clean conscience. So God doesn't look at me and see my sin. He doesn't look at me and see my moral filth. He doesn't look at me and see anything that I did wrong or anything anybody else did to me. He looks at me and he sees a son of God, a daughter of God, renewed, washed, redeemed, restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that, yeah. That is available to everybody today. What we're going to do is we're going to take communion now. I'm asking you to take out your communion cups. But here's what we're going to do in communion, all right? There's two groups of people in this room. Group number one, you have already given your life to Jesus Christ. And communion for you today is a chance for you to just say, thank you, God, that in this bread, in this juice, I find my redemption, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and I'm eating and drinking my redemption. For those of you who are here, maybe you've been here for a day, a week, a month, a year, I don't know. But you've never taken that next step to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. There's a faith in your heart, that's why you keep coming, but you've never taken that step to pronounce it. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before the angels in heaven one day. So there's a point where we have to open our mouths and say, I believe, I believe, and I receive. 
Some of you have never taken that step to be united with Christ in baptism. And I want to know, why not today? We literally have everything you need. Why not today? So during this communion time, I just want you to ask God, God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? And if today's the day, I'll tell you how to respond in just a moment. I'll start a prayer. I'll hand it to you. And then I'll come back up in a moment and tell you what to do next. So just spend this time listening to God. Father, thank you. Whatever exactly was happening in Genesis chapter 6, God, I thank you for telling us this much. We got a problem. We have a sin problem that's led to a death problem, and it's been inspired by our enemy, the devil. And so, God, thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for not quitting on us. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for rescuing and redeeming Noah and his family that you could give us Jesus, our ultimate rescue. And thank you, God. Thank you, God, for life. We look forward to heaven when all things are restored and there's no more groaning of your creation. When there could be this relationship again between heaven and earth and us and you. God, meet us in this place now and speak to us whatever you desire of us, Father. In Jesus' name.